Okay. Um, thank you, thank you, Louis. That was a great presentation. Um, to start with, I'm giving a presentation now on uh, millennials and insurance, and I'm the first to admit that if I knew what was the solution, um, how we can solve insurance for millennials and how we can sell sell it to them, then I wouldn't be standing here. I'd be starting my own insurance company and doing it. Um, and also with all the tools that I've seen now from Louis and uh, Diavolt, it seems that it's actually quite achievable um, to actually start an insurance company and start doing this. So the presentation, what I'm going to dis discuss today is just highlight some of the research that January has done to understand the impact um, that millennials will have on insurance and what we think the best ways are to sell um, insurance to millennials, um, touching on some of the examples that Diavolt gave earlier and expanding on them. Um, so... Who are millennials? Well, the short answer is, is that most of the people in this room are probably millennials. So if I want to have a discussion about how to solve the problem about millennials and insurance, the best way is probably just to give the mark out and ask people about their opinions and just start sharing ideas. I think that would be the fastest way to get to a solution. Um, but if we were to give an actual definition, then we have to say that millennials are born between 1981 and 2000. Now, the problem for that is, is that means I'm a millennial, and I always thought being a Generation X sounds much cooler, but unfortunately, I'm also a millennial. Um, also, one thing to remember is that when we talk about millennials um, and Generation X, etc., it is a very American and European concept. And in South Africa, um, our generations are defined by a few different things, different factors influence it, and we mostly talk about born freeze in the South African context. Now, there are some differences between millennials and born frees, but I feel there's enough similarities and overlap that um, we can apply the lessons that are being learned on millennials and apply them in the South African context. So, we always say that millennials are coming, but the fact is, as I said, we are here. We are sitting in this room. So the question is, how big are we already? So to answer this question, I looked at January's group business, um, to see about like, what percentage of our group business consists of millennials, people born after 1981. And as you can see, we're actually quite big already. If you look at all schemes, we're about a third of all the people covered. Of course, this varies across industry. And you can see what's quite interesting is that uh, municipalities is quite a favorite industry for, uh, for the boomers. Um, I don't know why. It must be quite a cozy job, maybe, work at the municipalities. Um, one thing to remember about this is that group business, by definition, is you don't often have a choice to have cover. So if you look at this, this just basically reflects the distribution of how many millennials are in the workforce at the moment. But what is the thing that we're trying to answer is how do we get them to sell individual, how to, to buy individual cover? Because that's the part that we're struggling with. So there are many ways to summarize the values of millennials. Um, and I think it is important that we understand the values of millennials because we need to understand what they look for in a product and how they think about a product before they buy it. Now, there was a question earlier with the Evolt session that said um, that the thing that is valued is security. You want to make certain the process is done properly. But if you go through this list of things that at least I think that millennials uh, find valuable, and um, I leave it to you to contradict it, but I feel these are common things, is that millennials want flexibility and choice. That is what is important to millennials. Their products must be convenient and easy to access. It must be um, 
they must be digitally connected, so there must be a sense of community and that their brand support some sort of social good and must be socially responsible. And it must be personalized to individual needs and it mustn't be one size fits all. Now, all these things that I mentioned here, none of them are security. I mean, I walk into, I get into an Uber car at the middle of the night and I don't think about security about getting home. Or when I rent out my apartment on Airbnb, I don't think about, well, I'm letting a stranger into my room. He's going to kill me in the middle of the night. The place, things are in to take care of the security. But security isn't the thing that's at the top of my mind. It's all about having flexibility, having choice available, making it easy uh, to converse with the person. Those sort of things is what you value in a product. So when we design an insurance product, we must make certain that we take care of these requirements. Otherwise, millennials wouldn't want to buy it. So as an example, how did Coke tap into these four values? We all saw these Coke bottles, where you could add your, the name was on it, and you could buy a bottle that had your name on it. And there was also a way to online share that you're buying a Coke and having a cheer with your friend when you buy it. Um, and that created that community effect that we said the millennials value. Now, the flip side is none of these bottles had my name on it. So I was very disappointed by the campaign and made certain I never bought any of them. But um, in general, we should remember that when is the last time it has ever happened that you share on Facebook that you just bought an insurance policy? Or do you ever put on Facebook that you just had a successful claim on your insurance policy? So we don't do these things. So um, why are other people getting it right? And can we learn from this to create these sort of platforms? And as we've seen in previous slides, people are moving in that direction. There's always more things to click than you think of when you're actually doing the presentation. Um, so in the UK, January had a, um, did a survey um, to understand, to try and understand why millennials uh, are not buying insurance. Because the big problem is that the younger generations are not seeing the need for insurance. And here are the summary of some of the results that we saw. Now, what is interesting and the most striking for me is that too expensive was the least used reason. So only 5% say it's too expensive. That means cutting margins and reducing the price is not the way to go about to grow the pie. What they said is that they do not think they need it. Because not everybody here has got to actually as a brother-in-law to take you around the shoulder and say, you need to buy insurance. People don't think they need it. So... But we as actuaries, we do believe um, we, uh, people need it. So how do we grow the market and get millennials to buy it? Um, the one way to do it is to make certain that it is designed in a way that it taps into the values of uh, millennials, as I mentioned in the previous slide. So how can we sell to millennials? As we've seen, the only way can, we can buy is it must make certain that when something happens in their life that makes them feel they need it right now, at that point, when that trigger happens, that is when we need to offer them insurance. So we need to find those triggers in their life, and then at that point, offer it to them and personalize it so that um, it meets their specific need. So in order to sort of find these potential triggers, I've investigated two possibilities. One is the birth of a child, and the other one was getting married. So great minds think alike. Um, to do this, I compared the age of marriage or childbirth from home affairs records to the age at which a policy was purchased for 82 individuals who were either 25, 30, 35, or 40 when they bought insurance. 
So I wanted to see if the insurance was bought within 12 months of when either of these two life events happened. So I did that, and I got some interesting, even if not conclusive, results. First, I compared the age that the policyholder had their first and second child to the age at which the policy was purchased. So, given that the person bought insurance, was it bought within 12 months of the birth of a child? Now, uh, lots of my friends um, are having children at the moment, so I need to actually ask them, and you'll have from personal experience maybe, um, is it at that point in your life, do you suddenly feel that there is a risk in your life that you need protection? What we saw is that men aged 30 and 35, almost 50% was, uh, of their insurance was purchased within 12 months of the birth of the either the first or second child. And for women around age 30, the trend was similar. What was also interesting is that females bought the cover after the child was born, and men bought it before the child was born. So this looks like it can be quite a strong trigger. Next, I compared the age of marriage to the age at which the policy was purchased to see if it was bought within 12 months of marriage. Now, ideally, I would have wanted to answer the question the other way around. I wanted to answer the question that um, when did the person buy insurance, given that he married? But unfortunately, I work at a reinsurance company, and so all the things I look at is people already have insurance. Um, so I cannot ask the question the other way around. What is interesting from this is it seems that uh, men find uh, um, marriage a much riskier prospect than females do. But overall, it was not as strong a trigger as the birth of a child. So what does all this indicate? It indicates for me that it means that if we want to sell insurance to a millennial, we must sell it to them when they get children. However, any life-changing event could indicate the need and the willingness to buy insurance. And these could be also marriage, divorce, selling you on your own, you need to take care of yourself, or when you buy a house is also a potential trigger. And there's lots of other things that we can think of that are triggers in your life and that can be found over with big data. You can find out that the person has a trigger, something happened, and that's the time that you need to approach them. So what solutions do we see emerging that are acting on these triggers and are addressing the values of millennials? Now, some of it will overlap with the great presentation given earlier. Um, and they are not perfect yet, so, and they're not the only possible solutions. Um, but the point is new solutions are emerging, and at some point there will be a winner. The question is, will that winner be a traditional insurance company, and will the designer of the policy be an actuary? And most likely, it will not be. So the first is a straightforward solution. We have seen that the birth of a child is an important trigger in your life, so why don't we offer free insurance to the person uh, when, you get, uh, when your child is born as a hook to sell further insurance? That's quite straightforward to do, easy to offer, and then you have that connection with the person. But what's more interesting, um, and to the point of millennials, is the emerging concept of peer-to-peer -peer insurance, as we've seen in the previous uh, presentation. So what is peer-to-peer -peer insurance, or the share economy, as I like to call it? I'm going to give a brief overview again of it, as was given in the previous slide. But basically, what happens is you get a group of people together. And how that group is determined varies in different ways. But they come together, and their premiums are split into two groups. You calculate the risk premium. Part of the premium goes to your pool's premium. And the other group goes to your insurance costs, to cover your insurance costs. Small claims are paid out of the, the pool. And whatever money is remaining, 
there can be various decisions about what happens with that part of the money. But the big part covers your big claims, and that pool is then technically infinite. So the main benefit for the insurer or for the policyholder is that he's always fully covered. And that's something that I thought didn't understand when I started hearing about peer-to-peer insurance. It felt that, well, where, what happens if a big claim comes in? And the fact is the money still goes to insurer, and big claims will be settled. So that problem doesn't exist. But it is all about, as was mentioned earlier, is an alignment of the incentives is that because you now are in a group of people, you're effectively, if you commit fraud or claim unnecessarily, you're stealing from your friends or your peers. And that sort of disincentive stops people from claiming. And the benefit for the insurance company is it means they can lower their premiums because they know there will be less small or fraudulent claims. Now, we used to call this either um, mutual insurance or excess. So you have an excess that stops you from making small, insignificant claims. It protects you, uh, the admin costs for the, policy, for the insurance company, and allows your premium to be lower. The problem is insurers have had a terrible uh, reputation with it, and it's terrible at marketing the benefit of um, excess. We as actuaries need to understand how excess works, but nobody else likes it. Everybody wants to get rid of it. Um, so it's not marketed well. Another problem is it's not a concept that can easily be expanded into life or disability business. It's just used in short-term business. So how do we get around it? Well, here are a few solutions. Now, all of these companies use the, the principles that I've discussed earlier, and the lemonade one has been gone in um, great detail earlier. Um, but the principle is... Uh, various ways. It applies the, the previous slides in various ways. So, for example, group of uh, bought by many, the people come together and it's brokers or people on their own coming together and going to bought by many and asking, can you give me this and this and this type of cover? Then they group the people together and give them unique cover or at a discounted price, the cover is given to the people. So that's how the grouping process works. Whereas with Lemonade, the grouping process is the charity that you selected. That is one of the mechanisms that means that this is a group that comes together. Another thing that varies between the different solutions is also what happens with that pool of money. Now, a solution like Board of, Bought by Many doesn't have this group pool to share. And then you have Friendsurance, where um, that pool of money goes back to pay your premium, the, the similar to the example given, or Lemonade, where that pool of money then goes to your charity. But the main thing is that no underwriting profit is made. Now, imagine an insurance company with no underwriting profit, and as was explained, the solution is that all of it is by admin fees. That is how it is covered. So the point is, this is a solution that addresses those four needs that I said at the start. It is personalized, it is a, connect, a, a community, um, and um, it is whenever you need it, it's instantaneous cover. So... The millennials are coming to an industry near you, and they will only buy it if it is when you need it and what you need, and if it's as a part of a group of peers. Thank you very much for listening to me today. So I do need to thank Adrian for, for reminding me as a, as a very proud exer that I'm, that I'm certainly old and, and irrelevant. Um, and also fascinating to reflect on the fact that insurance apparently have a vested interest in ineffective contraception, which, um, 
which those of you who know me well would, would know is, is an area that I have some personal experience in. Um, we, have about, we have about 10 minutes left. So I, I want to open the floor for, for questions to, to Adrian, and I think in the interest of time, we'd be happy to, to take questions to any of the three presenters. So please wave frantically. I see a hand over there. If one of the roaming mics can help me over there. Another question, perhaps, while we're waiting for the mic, please feel free at any time to just wave to me or one of the roaming mics. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, really interesting talks. Thank you all. Um, question mostly for Louis, but for, for everyone there. Um, and more just a comment. <laughs> um, Sam Harris today just released a, a podcast on the dawn of artificial intelligence. He's also done a TED talk on it. Very interesting. Um, and also, he gets into some of the ethical complications, like, for example, the driverless cars, whose life is more important, the, guy, the person in the car or the passenger, um, and how are we going to solve those problems going forward? Thanks. Um, I don't have solutions. Um, I was an avid uh, uh, sci-fi reader in, 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 in my youth, and Isaac Asimov's uh, three rules of robotics come to mind whenever, that, whenever those uh, considerations about the safety of cars and, and how it works. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you read that Mercedes-Benz actually um, said that they will actually prioritize the, the driver's life over, over any pedestrian's life. So people, it will prioritize the people in the car over anybody else, which is quite a bold statement to make. So um, I, 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 I'm, I'm just also watching from the sidelines how that, uh, uh, how that uh, develops. That's my comment. Perhaps that's an area where actuaries can play a strong role because I think as actuaries, we, in general at least, we are very ethical human beings and very professional human beings, and I think we can play a very active role in ensuring that this market is not a cowboy market, but it's one that is, uh, that is ethically strong. I don't see any other hands. Please do wave if you have another question. Because if we don't, I see a question over there. Can we get a roaming mic in that direction, please? And I do want to ask, it takes some time for the mics to move, so if you feel you have another burning question, then raise your hand preemptively so that we can get the mic to you. Thank you. It's a question for, for Louis. Um, in, um, and maybe someone else in the audience will know as well. Um, whether there's been um, application of these bots in education, especially in South Africa, that could be something that could be quite useful. Yeah, I think uh, I, I don't. I'm not aware of education uh, per se, but I do think that in in assessing knowledge, um, to me that seems to be an obvious obvious place to to to, to look at. But if you think about um, Coursera, um, online education uh, in that form, it is kind of a little bit of a, a step in that direction where you can uh, enroll in courses online. You watch the videos, you complete the exercises, you submit those exercises. I took part in one Coursera course, and uh, and the course automatically rates everything as you go along. Now, I'm not sure if that's suitable to the, to the to level of, of, of qualifying for a degree, but for uh, 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 certainly assessing uh, uh, school education, I do think there's some advantages in that. It looks like those are all the questions we had. Did I skip anyone? I think we've exhausted the discussion, so just join me. I think this was a fascinating session. If you can just join me in thanking the three <laughs> presenters. Well done, yeah.
And the presenters are also thanking each other, as you might have noticed. Um, I think we have about, uh, we've, we're five minutes early, no doubt due to my brilliant facilitation of the session. Um, we have about 15 minutes to move across to the, to the, uh, to the auditorium for, I think, the final plenary session. Thank you very much for attending.